Welcome to Everyday Nonviolence, Extraordinary People Speaking Truth to Power. This podcast is developed by Friends for a Nonviolent World, FNVW, whose mission is to champion nonviolence as the foundation for effective programs and actions to promote the dignity of every living being. Violence impacts us all. Our goal here is to give voice to people who are working to use active nonviolence those who have experienced violence, and those who have committed acts of violence. Each week, we'll hear stories that will deepen our understanding of violence and the principles of nonviolence. Our host today is Joanne Perry, a longtime activist and lifelong pacifist. Welcome, everyone, to our podcast, Everyday Nonviolence, Extraordinary People Speaking Truth to Power. I'm your host, Joanne Perry, and today we are welcoming Ms. Lois Yellow Thunder. Ms. Yellow Thunder is a co-author of the upcoming book with the working title, From Conflict to Partnerships. Lois earned her PhD in anthropology, did her field work with immigrant populations in Los Angeles, several Native American nations, and suburban Minnesotans. She has worked in a number of museums in a variety of positions over the period of 10 years and coordinated the first Native American festival in Chicago. Lois worked in a number of Minnesota counties as a human services planner, county government study commissions, and a strategic planner. She has also worked on state and federal program on aging. Lois is currently working on a proposed project with Mary Beth Neal, whose working title is Food for Thought. The project involves creating a supportive and nurturing neutral space for legislators and their staff. This project was inspired by the work being done by Quakers at the United Nations, Q-U-N-O, as well as the Quaker Welcome Center developed by the Friends Committee on National Legislation in Washington, D.C. Welcome to our podcast, Lois. We are delighted to have you and thank you for taking time from your busy life to be here with us today. My pleasure, Joanne. Your life work appears to be attempting to create social change centered on community. One example is your new book, which creates a systemic approach to resolving complex issues which involve many interrelated parts that work form a complex system. Another example is your observations on the practice of genocide worldwide and how the same process appears in almost all conflicts, as well as your points of intervention to resolve the injustice and the killing before the situation escalates to mass murder. We'll talk about your book and your thoughts on intervening in genocide in a minute, but let us first hear about how you came to this work. I think our listeners will enjoy a brief synopsis of your story. How did you come to this work? Well, I started out as a very young person, I would say a high school student volunteering at the Los Angeles County Museum of Natural History, which was having an exhibit on the uh, United Nations Declaration on Human Rights. And I became very aware that human rights and creating understanding across differences, working on issues of discrimination, social justice, war, were all interconnected. And I was inspired by the curator of anthropology who had curated this exhibit. With his encouragement, I saw that anthropology as a discipline would be a route toward looking at some of these issues. So I determined to become an anthropologist about the age of 15. And you stuck to it. Yep. You might say that uh, I either had persistence or I was unimaginative. (laughs) 
it sounds to me like you had an aha moment there of the differences between the way that you were raised in your vision of the world versus what other people might also have as a perception of the world. And it may be startlingly different. Is that true? Well, I think that um, my version of the world, uh, first of all, I can remember about that age. I grew up in the Santa Monica Mountains, and I used to look down at the city, and I would see that in the evening, lights would come on in grid systems. And it occurred to me, even at the age of 15, that these grids were patterns and that our life patterned somewhat like the grids. And the question I asked myself at the time is, why one pattern rather than another pattern? And it seemed to me that anthropology as a study of human culture and human behavior patterns would be a route toward social change. What I also did um, as a sophomore was to try to right away go out into the field and be with people and situations. And that was very helpful because anthropologists are curious people and we learn a lot by what we call participant observation. So we watch how people behave, we interview people. We participate as well as stand aside and observe. So it's really good training for an area of social change. Now you're writing books, you're forming new organizations. You spend a very successful time working within systems and bureaucracies Mm -hmm. to create social change and social possibilities or change possibilities for people who are recipients and probably beyond. Well, I started out thinking that one of the keys to social change was learning and education and that providing people with information, with data, with facts would make change. And certainly academic anthropology really does pretty much focus on research and field work. There is an area of applied anthropology, but I wasn't in that area, although I certainly wish I would have been. My first challenge, actually, was after I got my master's degree, I worked with the League of Women Voters in St. Paul on a project related to Native American housing in the city of St. Paul. And really, that was an awakening for me because I realized we interviewed a great number of people. We learned a lot about the situation of families trying to get housing that was at reasonable cost. I didn't have the slightest idea how to take the information we learned and actually make something happen. That particular committee, though, that I worked with interestingly enough, was made up of some very fine women, and they ended up maybe carrying this out in ways that I couldn't. One became a state legislator, and the other became a program officer for a community foundation here in the Twin Cities. So in some ways, I could say they took what we had learned, and they were able to apply it in their new roles. But I was profoundly impacted by that because I realized I had quite a ways to go before I would really understand how to make change. So my next job, actually, as I was working toward my doctorate, was to apprentice myself to a community organizer slash change agent person. And that was part of what my dissertation was about and why you said that I had studied suburban Minnesotans. I learned a lot about how you organize people, how you present yourself, how you impact the political decision-making process, how you quote-unquote stack the chambers, get citizens involved. It was kind of awesome to watch this particular person in action, and I didn't necessarily 
think that was my role, but I was very glad to learn about it, and that provided another piece of my information besides just how to interview people and get information and do research. After that, the next thing I wanted to do was to find out how people at the top the decision makers worked and how that process went. So I became an aide to a county commissioner and I learned a lot about how public officials make their decisions. And I certainly had a lot more compassion for the challenges they face than I had understood before I got into this arena. You know, I learned that they're bombarded with information, that they have people talking to them all the time about many, many issues, and they couldn't possibly know everything about every single issue. But usually they would pick out one or two major issues and these would be issues that they would follow and then depended on staff basically to provide them with further information. I also learned that their constituents often become their peers. So they need to work with other legislators, other county commissioners, other city council members to get some of their legislation ordinances passed. Then when election time comes around, their constituents shift again and they have to talk to the public about what they've done. So that was a very interesting process. I also learned that many of them are very bright. They like absorbing information, not in the reports I was trained to do, but they like elevator speeches because they don't have a lot of time. They like bullet points and they like recommendations. So uh, that was very helpful information. But then I decided I would try now having done the top and the bottom, so to speak, I would see what the mid-level bureaucrats were up to. So I became a mid-level bureaucrat. And I learned, again, how to present information to decision makers, which I think because of my work as an aide to the county commissioner, I already had some idea. And that was extremely helpful. I think I was also helpful to my colleagues because sometimes they would work very hard on reports and recommendations, and then they would see that their recommendations were voted down and they'd get pissed off. I would explain to them, you know, that sometimes in order to get something that, well, a public official would want to have passed, let's say they were interested in transit or they were interested in trash hauling or something like that, that they would essentially, that would be their area. They would know about it. They would be willing to vote for other things that they didn't know so much about simply so that they could get some of their public policies passed. So they they might very well understand a nice written report with good recommendations, but for reasons that the mid-level bureaucrat wouldn't understand, but I, I think I understood a little more, they might not have voted for it. And it wasn't voting down the information. It was simply practical politics. So I guess I tried to understand the different levels of decision-making and how to best impact those and how to be strategic. And I was very impressed with people working at all those levels. I thought they were very good people. Is that what you might consider uh, applied anthropology? Definitely. I regarded myself essentially, I knew nothing about, for example, county government when I started. So I said to myself, hmm, I'm going to approach this like I would approach a small community. And I would try to find out, you know, who are the informal leaders? Who are the formal leaders? What are the unwritten 
rules? What are the formal rules? And those are things that you really have to get into the system to understand. The question that I asked at the outset was, what needs to change? And the question I think I should have asked is, what forces are at work to maintain the status quo? Because it takes a lot of energy to keep things from changing. And so it's important to understand, first of all, what sorts of work is going on, what sorts of efforts are being made to keep things from changing. Do you happen to have an example offhand of that? Well, my first foray into county government was working for a county government study commission. And, you know, we had a whole long list of things that needed to change. We thought it was to modernize county government operations. That was what was very popular in the 1970s. And, you know, we came up with a long list of things that needed to be changed, and basically nothing changed. And, as a matter of fact, I remember working with someone who said, look, you're going to have a nice two-year job, and at the end of it, nothing will happen. And that sort of motivated me to see if there was another way we could bring about change. And at that time, I was on the board of the St. Paul League of Women Voters, so we organized the various leagues in Ramsey County to support County Government Study Commission. There was a new law that was passed, and all it needed was 1% of the voters to sign a petition and say, we want a new study commission. And by golly, we were very close to getting that 1%, and then went to the county board and said, we'll have the 1% shortly, probably within the week, but perhaps you would like to create the commission yourself. They could do it with a county board resolution, which they did to their credit, and we got a really good person who was a former county administrator in another county to be the director of that particular study commission, and they made some very good recommendations, which the county adopted, and it was one step along the path of modernizing the county. So that was another way of getting things done, and I would say it was very satisfying. Sounds like it. It took a lot of effort by a lot of people, including the county board. Well, good for you. Let's move on a little bit. Let's talk about your book, From Conflict to Partnerships, and the methods used to resolve conflicts with people who have varying interests, ideas, investments in a particular situation. I haven't seen the latest incarnation of this book, but I do recall your lake story. Uh, involved a large number of people and organizations attempting to reach a solution to the problem of a decreasing water level in one of the local Mm -hmm. lakes. Maybe you could tell us briefly about the skills that are required and how the situation might be resolved. Well, first of all, I want to stress that we didn't use one lake. Where there are many lakes, as in 10,000 lakes, we used a composite. Many of the lakes, not only in Minnesota, but elsewhere, particularly in the uh, upper Midwest, tend to rise and fall, so the lake levels change. Those lakes are often very beautiful, used for many purposes, agriculture, industry, recreation. So our hypothetical lake, the level was dropping, people were concerned, nobody quite knew what was causing it. It turns out there were a lot of different things that were different factors. People began to demand, and this is a very common pattern, that who's in charge, who should do something about it, do it yesterday, we don't want to lose our water, etc., etc. And I think this kind of a situation, not just with a lake, but with other issues, is pointing us to how the future is going to look for us, which is issues that appear maybe initially to be simple, but they're 
they're not. They're complex. They're part of larger systems. There are many different interests, and there's no villains or heroes in this. It's just people come at it with different perspectives. So one of the things that we did was, and I credit a colleague of mine for coming up with this, we have several tools that we introduced in the book, one of which was called Step Zero, which is the kind of overview of the system before you get started doing anything about it. It would be to ask yourself a couple questions. Do people think there's a problem? Do they have any degree of cohesion or agreement on what the problem or problems are? And how committed are they to solving the problem? And is doing nothing an option as well? Those are questions that often are not asked before we start digging into some very political issue. I think people generally are very smart about knowing how to get information, knowing their own decision-making processes. Where we're starting to move into new territories is that we often, with these issues, have multiple governments involved. So there might be cities and counties and watershed districts, state, sometimes the federal. And how do you work with those entities? And how do you also work with the many interests I mentioned before? So people that depend for their livelihood or their recreation or their aesthetics on, let's say, a lake. So we talk a lot about how we bring people together using some mediation techniques and how we talk about how you create propositions. So a proposition might be something where we would say, well, in the case of the lake, this is the goose that lays the golden eggs. And how can we all, regardless of how we use the lake, preserve what's helping all of us? So we're looking for some kind of common goal that people can agree would be desirable. And I think that's really important. Uh, That requires a lot of constant communication, and it also involves using some of the newer technology, social media as well as traditional media. Having done that, we all have our own self-interests. And so the ability then to pull the self-interest together, we're not asking that people change their self-interest. That's perfectly natural and there's nothing wrong with having your own self-interest. But it's pulling them together in agreement that we have a common goal and then seeing how those interests can be satisfied. So what we're really talking about is a very carefully thought out process for decision making. And where I think it points out the way toward the future is we're also looking at a couple new concepts. Well, they're not so new, but we're looking at a couple concepts which have to do with partnering and leveraging because we all are in times where at least the general perception is we have fewer and fewer resources. We could argue about that one, whether it's perceived or actual, but working together in concert, public and private, private and private, public and public kinds of partnerships is one way both to make scarce resources go further and to get support for all 
all parties. So I realize this all sounds rather abstract, but we try to lay this out in a way that is pretty understandable and really understanding that people already are doing a lot of these things, just pulling together a lot of ideas and process. It sounds to me like leadership used to be defined in the past, and I took notes on what you just said, so I'll kind of review them for our listeners. Uh, Do an overview. Decide where the problem is and where there is agreement and where there is commitment to resolve the problem. Identify the concerned parties. Then move to mediation and talk and common good and common goals. Mm -hmm. Okay, and then again, pull out the individual interest and get some agreement on what would work. And then lastly, move to partnership and leveraging the partnerships and finding a way to work together. Mm -hmm. Is that it? And I think pretty early on, really looking at what resources you're going to need because many projects fail when they don't create some kind of financial plan very early on. A good piece to add, especially when you're talking about something as complex as 100 neighbors and three or four government agencies, somebody who wants to use it for trash, somebody wants to use it for well water, somebody, I mean, there's a lot of pieces in a lake. And in many other issues as well. Thank you. You've been listening to part one of another episode of the Friends for a Nonviolent World podcast, Everyday Nonviolence. FNVW podcast can be found on your favorite podcast platform and on our website at fnvw.org. Subscribe to our podcast to receive notifications about new episodes. And visit our website and Facebook page to find out the latest on our programs that demonstrate the power of transformation at the personal, community, and institutional levels. And while you're there, please consider making a donation as a champion for nonviolence. Thank you. And now, let's return to part two of this episode of Everyday Nonviolence. You're listening to the podcast, Everyday Nonviolence. I'm Joanne Perry and your host, and this is Lois Yellow Thunder, who has been an anthropologist, a county planner, and an author, and is now working to create a space for legislatures and their staff to come together and discuss, in civil terms, ongoing issues. Lois, you've been an anthropologist all this time, and it shows, but how did you choose, or how did you make the decision to go from one level of a system into another, and how did you pick these ways? Well, I uh, wrote something when I was about 25, and I was in graduate school, and I wrote, uh, I've read it, I, I saved the paper, I said I don't intend to be an academic. I was real clear about that. I was not going to be, uh, I have taught anthropology and enjoyed it very much but not continuously, just now and again. So I knew I was wanting to actually look at real-world issues, and I wanted to be able to make a difference, and I I just kept trying to see where I would fit. And in some ways, I really look back on my government career with a great deal of gratitude because I got lots of experience. I learned a lot about different levels. Uh, I learned very quickly. I didn't want to be an elected official because I didn't like uh, the practice of running for office. I also learned that I like to research things too much to be a good elected official. If you spend your time researching a lot, you're not going to be able to be very effective as a public official. I learned that as a community organizer, that wasn't really my, you know, bailiwick, shall we say, because in some ways, I'm a rather shy person, and I do not like to persuade people to think my way. I'd much rather go in and just, I like 
I like encouraging people to think whichever way they want, and I like with the students I taught, I enjoyed helping them develop their own creativity, so I like that very much. Mid-level bureaucracy was okay. Uh, I enjoyed that for a number of years. I think where I would have gone with it probably would be uh, to management, because I did learn that having a lot of responsibility but no authority made it very difficult to get things done. Even when, you know, I would be coordinating or directing projects, if I didn't have that authority, I was still was limited. So that I would have, I would have uh, wanted to do, I think. It sounds to me kind of like when you found a place in your heart or your brain or wherever, when it didn't fit, you knew it was time to move on. Is that what you're saying? Oh, yeah, I think so. Um, but I liked staying long enough to learn a lot, too. Mm-hmm. And I did. I'm very grateful. I've had quite an interesting career and also enjoy working on my own now, too. Mm-hmm. Well, you're obviously accomplishing quite a bit. Let's talk about your interest in intervention in potential genocide situations around the world. I know you were inspired by a presentation made by a national public radio correspondent who had reported from Bosnia and Rwanda. Also, I want to acknowledge that this is still for you in the theoretical realm. The process leading to genocide appears to follow the same pattern in both cases, both in Bosnia and in Rwanda. Would you be willing to discuss this process or the manual, so to speak, that they seem to follow? Well, you're right, Joanne. This is a something that I have been interested in for a long time. I think I see it now more on a local level than I do international. I've always been a big thinker, but at the same time wanted to see things happen. But I was particularly inspired by Silvia Pujoli, who had participated both in Bosnia and Rwanda and noticed a similar pattern. Along the road, we see the signs of devastation. House after house has been bombed or gutted. Some are simply boarded up and abandoned. The domes of many mosques lie in rubble. The only signs of life are chickens and pigs that have been left behind. As we approach the next town, there is less destruction, but groups of families are huddled along the side of the road. Next to them are small bundles of meager belongings. They appear frightened and probably don't know where to go. A man drives a horse cart through the central square. These are not bucolic scenes of a Balkan village that has remained frozen in time. These are the effects of war. The first thing that she noticed was that sources of information were cut off to people living in those areas. So, for example, the uh, radio station from Belgrade, the Serbian radio station, that began to be the only source of news, or one of the few for the uh, Serbian population in Bosnia. So they were hearing one part of the story. Same thing, according to Pajoli, was happening in Rwanda. Rwanda, too, where Hutus were being, you know, told that Tutsis were bad and so forth and so forth. I'm grossly oversimplifying. But the point is that when you don't have multiple points of view, you're in danger to be swayed by that one source of information. And uh, so that was the first thing. Uh, The second thing that Pujoli talked about was the language. So when language is used that degrades the other, whether it be 
Hutu, Tutsi, Bosnian Muslims, uh, Croatians, whatever, when the other is spoken of in non-human terms or the enemy, that's a buildup. When you talk and use violent language like, I want to kill them, that is another step in the process. And as Pujoli said, first they talked about killing each other and then they killed each other. And what was really frightening to me was this happened over a period of about six months. So the buildup is very fast. And what really, really concerns me is that over the last few years, we have certainly resorted to much more disrespectful, even violent conversation describing others, whether it's immigrants, whether it's members of one political party or the other. And why the emphasis should be on civility, in my view, is because these things tend to increase and they tend to lead to violent behavior. Violent conversation leads to violent behavior at times. And we have to be very, very careful because I believe that we can easily get triggered to violence. And it may not seem like something that is possible, but it is possible. And we see it in these so-called civilized, quote-unquote, societies. So certainly a reason why I was impressed with what uh, Sylvia Pujoli said, and I thought about it more on the local level because it applies there as well, and it certainly needs to be intervened before we get to the violence. I know there is a rising fear amongst the African-American community here in St. Paul and Minneapolis that if something were to happen to our president, a heart attack or um, an assassination attempt, that that would inspire uh, certain groups to come out shooting at people of color. They're very, very convinced of it. And if I'm listening to what you are saying, I would say that they actually have a point. They are have reason to be afraid. Well, I think that it's very important that hate language be dealt with because it does incite people. And um, there's been a lot of work uh, on scapegoating, which is another part of this. And in difficult, particularly in difficult economic times, when people are very frightened themselves, we always want to find, I think the tendency is to find somebody or something to blame. And Certainly, in my opinion, we found a few scapegoats recently, one of which is immigrants. And this is very frightening because scapegoating is used with language, can lead to violence. So I'm going to review what you just said about Mm -hmm. the manual. Uh, Number one, the instigators would limit contradictory opinions, sometimes as easily as limiting the population's access to only one radio station. Secondly, the identification of the lack of virtue or the evidence of flaws to the targeted population actually creating a group as an other, mm-hmm. not human. Mm-hmm. Third, begin the talk of eliminating the others. We'll kill the enemy or we'll get rid of them or something mm-hmm. to those lines. And fourth, begin the mass murder. Mm-hmm. It's a very simple step process. It's frightening. It is, and I'm sure there's, I want to 
qualify it by saying I'm sure there's a great deal more complexity with the process. But this is what I remember from what Sylvia Pujoli said, and she probably was, you know, summarizing a great deal of information. So I'm probably oversimplifying. But I think those are very important elements that she identified and that we have to be extremely careful about. So not to leave us on a note of horror and fear, mm-hmm. were you to intervene, where would you and what would you do? I do know that a lack of lack of a war or lack of a genocide might look like a non-event. Something just didn't happen, so it was nothing to be afraid of. But do you have some examples of where this might have already happened? Somebody intervened at the right place? Well, one of the neighboring countries, for example, to Rwanda, they started to get that hate radio coming across their borders. And one of the things they did was to cut off the hate radio. Now, I realize we have First Amendment and so forth, but making sure that people do have multiple sources of information is very important so they can make up their minds and they are not into one mindset. So in that case, we didn't see the slaughter in that neighboring country that we did in Rwanda. So that was an example where they intervened and they intervened fairly early. Was that Burundi? It would make sense if it were Burundi Mm because there, instead of being mostly Hutu and slightly Tutsi, they are mostly Tutsi and uh, slightly Hutu. Mm -hmm. And, you know, ironically, one of my professors, many years before this, used the Hutu and the Tutsi as an example of two groups of people who lived in harmony and kind of a symbiotic relationship. And uh, he died before all of this happened, but I'm sure he's rolling over in his grave because I think he underestimated the potential for violence. So if you were to intervene, you would do it at the beginning, providing more sources Mm -hmm. of information. Mm -hmm. It's actually a leading example of how one person could make a huge difference. Um, Mm -hmm. Because so often these things are so big and we don't know what we could do. We could import newspapers, for instance, or um, talk somebody into doing another uh, radio show. I mean, one person could do that. Mm -hmm. But were there other spots where you would like to mention? Well, I think what I'd like to mention at this point would be to take this very broad topic and just take it down to what's happening in our own government, in our own society. And that's food for thought and why we thought of food for thought. What what a number of us had become increasingly worried about was the lack of civility at all levels of government and particularly in Washington, in state government, and we were very concerned about the kind of language that was being used, and um, that's where we got this idea. It was not our idea, but we uh, started to look at, uh, as you would say, Joanne, interventions, and we looked at what the Quakers were doing at the United Nations, uh, CUNO, and they had something that was, they called quiet conversations, and they pulled together small groups of uh, ambassadors and the ambassadorial staff. They, of course, had a very good network and a lot of credibility with those folks. Um, For one or more conversations, Uh, small groups of people, who knows, maybe 8 to 15, having different perspectives on an issue. People park their um, 
affiliations at the door and they talk as individuals uh, over a meal, talk a little bit about a particular issue at, at times. And actually, uh, those quiet conversations over the years have certainly resulted in some um, collaborations, some agreements where it looked like there would be no agreement. One of them many years ago was the Treaty of the Sea. That seemed to have been one project that emerged from some of the activities, at least in part, uh, by CUNO. CUNO is currently working on climate change, doing somewhat of the same in Geneva uh, with these conversations. So uh, Mary Beth Neal and I, she's another anthropologist, we got the idea of seeing if we could do something with our legislature. Now, of course, it turns out we weren't the only ones that thought about this, and the legislature itself um, had, there was uh, two legislators, Representative Roz Peterson, Representative Joanne Ward, had created what was called the Civility Caucus, and they were already trying to do something, lunches in the Capitol, and uh, they brought in some training, how to uh, have more positive uh, working relationships. Uh, Most recently, at the beginning of this session, they brought in a group called Better Angels that work on polarized situations, and uh, Bill Doherty, who's done a lot of work in family therapy, uh, he's a professor at the University of Minnesota, um, used a family therapy model and designed workshops for groups that are polarized, and he was able to do workshops with the legislature. So we're in the process. We've interviewed a number of, uh, we've interviewed some legislators. Uh, We have had people look at our uh, proposal, which was basically a lot like CUNO, pulling together a few people over food, and that's where we got food for thought. And we're still in the process of figuring out who might be interested in this idea and kind of testing it a little bit. Mary Beth and I never saw ourselves as presenting or being the leading force, but rather seeing if there are other folks that we might want to partner with. And we certainly have been uh, fortunate that uh, Friends for a Nonviolent World has gotten interested in our project. And um, so that's kind of where we're at. We're on a journey, and we don't have any magic answers, but uh, we thought this is uh, an interesting approach and we thought it might also create a more positive uh, working relationship uh, but it sounds like the legislators themselves are recognizing the need as well which is to their credit. Lois is referring to her project Food for Thought which is a in its um, baby stages yet and hopes to be something bigger with partners. Also, QNO, for those who may not know what that means, it's the Quakers at the United Nations Organization. And QNO is what I called earlier Q-U-N-O. 
Um, thank you for your work there. Oh, you're welcome. I also wanted just to mention that uh, the Friends Committee on National Legislation, FCNL, that is based in Washington, D.C., has uh, created the Quaker Welcome Center across from the Senate Office Building, and they are trying also to create a safe space where legislators, members of Congress, can go um, to be able to uh, talk about areas of interest and uh, park their differences at the door and listen and share with each other. So they're creating that welcome space, uh, which uh, is somewhat like CUNO, but again, a different model. Thank you for being here today, Lois. We appreciate your being here and are grateful for the work you do in the world. The world wouldn't be the same without it. If our listeners have comments regarding this podcast, please feel free to direct them to the blog on our website, www.fnvw.org. We really look forward to hearing from you. Again, thank you for your time with us today. I am Joanne Perry, and you've been listening to the podcast, Everyday Nonviolence, Extraordinary People Speaking Truth to Power. Thank you for listening to Everyday Nonviolence. Extraordinary People Speaking Truth to Power. To learn more about Friends for a Nonviolent World and the work that we do, please visit our website, fnvw.org, or give us a call at 651-917-0383.